Welcome to RUF. Um, there are a few seats up front uh, if, you, if you're wanting to find a seat um, and maybe get snug and move, make, make some room on the aisles so people can find a seat. But no matter where you are here tonight, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, we are glad that you're here and we want you to feel welcome here. My name's Matt. I'm the campus minister with Wofford RUF if I haven't met you. Um, Caroline, our intern, did the call to worship tonight. We would love to meet you if we haven't. Um, please come introduce yourself during time getting dessert, and we'd love to set up a time to get coffee or lunch with you at some point soon. Um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we aspire to be a Christian campus ministry here, trying to figure out together what it means to love God, to love others, and to love Wofford, and we want to walk alongside you during these formative years of college, help you figure out how to do that. But more fundamentally, we're people bound by the reality that before anything else, we are loved by God. And if you're a Christian here and you're checking out campus ministries, if RUF doesn't stick, there are wonderful campus ministries here. There's UKirk, there's Campus Outreach, there's The Connection. Rev Ron is around uh, being the the good shepherd that he is um, and would love to to help you walk with Jesus in college. Um, This fall, we're going to be looking, continuing to, to do this tonight with the parables of Jesus. That's our series this fall, the parables of Jesus Parables, as you, uh, as you might know, were stories that Jesus told in his life, in his ministry, to try to make sense of what it means to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And when Jesus would tell these stories, he would often disorient people. He would frustrate people. He always had the habit of, of, of looking around in the room and telling a story that would disorient someone. Someone was always angry with Jesus, and the parables have a lot to do with that. And what we're looking at tonight is actually a familiar parable to you, I bet, if, especially if you grew up in church. It's the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. And what we're going to see in thinking about the Good Samaritan, we're going to see a picture of costly love, and we're going to see that Jesus paints a picture of costly love in a really challenging way. One of my friends and I were in a conversation a few weeks ago as a campus minister at another school, and we were talking about like all these sort of dystopian TV shows like Black Mirror and others that are trying to, and maybe the sci-fi genre at at large, is trying to provide a social commentary on the, the role of technology, technological advancements, social media, and how it is sort of dividing us in our relationships. It's doing certain things to our, our, our attention spans. Um, and actually, in many ways, Black Mirror is trying to show us that technology is making us less human, you might say. Um, and we were talking about this, and this is, this is something that my, my friend said in talking about this article he read in The Atlantic, I believe it was. It was an article called, Are Smartphones Turning Us Into Bad Samaritans? This is what my friend said. The claim was that so much progress in technology in the form of smartphones, social media, etc., is really hindering our ability to love one another. This is the article. It went on to reference several stories of people in dangerous situations in need of help. And rather than responding to that need and love, most people would either, first, they would not notice because of their phone. Or B, which was worse, they'd pull out their phones and be the first to try to capture the scene on camera. 
to document their hurt. These stories were troubling to read, and they highlight the unique role that social media plays in deepening the, the divisions in our society, limiting our imagination for loving our neighbor to liking and sharing articles rather than liking and sharing life with real people, with real life. And I, and I, you know, it's like, man, I'm glad I came to RUF tonight. We got like black mirror depressed. Um, but I think what my friend is on to here is I think that with the article, and it's, it's certainly not, it's underneath the like technological advancements that's may or may not helping us love each other and connect each other is like the posture of the human heart when we wake up is actually the problem. The posture of the human heart, the natural bent of our hearts prevent us from loving our neighbors. The natural bent of our hearts is actually the problem. Our preoccupation with ourselves and our to-do lists and our agendas and our GPAs and our 401ks and our applications, our preoccupation with ourselves actually distances us from others. And so Jesus knows this because Jesus interacts this guy in this story, this lawyer who is profoundly preoccupied with himself. And this is the parable. This is uh, in your... In your, uh, the text is in your handout there. I'd invite you to follow along. Guys, this is God's word, and he is not silent. He's spoken to us, not to give us a book of rules to follow or an exam to master. He's spoken to us because he loves us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Lawyer answered, You shall love, your, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whoever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And this is Jesus' conclusion. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Word of God for the people of God. I'm going to pray again very briefly. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. May we be both hearers and doers of your word by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Game plan is before you. First, challenge. Second, fuel. Challenge and fuel. That's where we're going tonight. So if, if Jesus is saying anything in this parable, he's saying this. If you want to follow me, you have to follow me 
on my terms, not yours. If Jesus is saying anything, He has to be saying that. You must do it on my, on my terms, not yours. Following Jesus involves being challenged by Jesus. And we see this in a couple of ways. The first thing we see is that Jesus challenges our understanding of salvation. Jesus challenges our understanding of salvation. Look at, look at verse 25 again. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? They start talking about the law. He gives his answer. Jesus responds. You've answered correctly. He aces Jesus' theology exam. And then in verse 29, we read this. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, to make himself right with God and right with Jesus, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Luke's gospel records Jesus teaching all kinds of things about the kingdom of God and the ins and outs of it. And... The lawyer shows up and he challenges Jesus. He wants to put Jesus on the spot. And he is saying with confidence, Hey, look, I'm this religious expert. Tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. The emphasis is what do I need to do? The emphasis is what do I? It's self-serving. It's self-involved. And the emphasis is on do, i.e. works. Law. Okay, you see where we're going here. The lawyer rattles off his answer again with perfection. His theology is sound. He aces the pop quiz on the law, but he didn't. He actually failed this because when he says, what, what shall I do to get eternal life? He is saying that eternal life is something you can earn. That's what he's saying. To be right with God, to be right with Jesus, what do I need to do? Give me work to do. That's what he's saying. And that's terrible theology, and that's not gospel at all. Jesus is challenging our understanding of salvation. Because for him, this justifying himself project is a self-salvation project. It's a self-justification project for the lawyer. The emphasis is on his effort, his good work, his law-keeping. He knew the law inside and out, and he summarizes the Old Testament law in his answer. Perfectly. What can I do? Give me the game plan, Jesus. Do not challenge me. But it's not gospel. He changes our understanding of salvation and challenging us. The next thing we see is that Jesus challenges our pride. Jesus challenges our pride. Do you notice how entitled the lawyer is? Did you get this in the reading? He asked Jesus two questions in verse 25. He's trying to test Jesus, the lawyer. Again, he wants Jesus on his own terms. He's got all the right answers, and he's testing Jesus to see if he'll slip. And in telling Jesus this story, Jesus is reminding the lawyer that he is God. He is in control. He's... He's ripping this dude's pride apart. And he's saying, I'm God. You are not. And if we want to follow Jesus, we will find out very quickly that our pride has to die. Quickly. Or the journey with Jesus will not last. We have to trust that Jesus is our teacher and master and that we're not in charge. We have to assume the role of a learner. Actually, of a, of a disciple that's going to follow someone who has authority. 
That's what Jesus is after. And we have to get over and put our goofy preoccupation with ourselves to death if we're going to follow Jesus. So um, in this really great TV show, since we're talking about TV shows on Netflix, there's this really great one called The Office that has been around for a little bit. And <clears throat> there's this character, Dwight Schrute. We, I think we mentioned him last week. And uh, did we? Uh, I think we did. And um, there's this episode called Time Thief. Time Thief from The Office. And so Dunder Mifflin, there's a dispute in The Office about time management and how to use company time ethically, okay? And Dwight, the lawyer that he is, the Pharisee that he is, um, is just convinced that he never wastes company time at all. And so he commits to this all-day, all-shift-long thing of never wasting any company time. And if you've seen the episode, you know what happens. Jim, of course, tries to use this as an opportunity to poke fun and mess with Dwight, and uh, to try to make him mess up. And this is what Jim says towards the end. He has not stopped working for a second. <laughs> oh, I love this. At, tw- <laughs> at 12.45, he sneezed while keeping his eyes open, <laughs> which I always thought was impossible. At 1.32 p.m., he peed. And I knew that because he did it in an open soda bottle under the desk while filling out expense reports. And on the flip side, I have been so busy watching him that I haven't even started my own work. (laughs) It's exhausting being this vigilant. I'll probably have to go home a day early. Um, Okay, so like Dwight, uh, (laughs) this lawyer is so convinced that he's faultless. Do you see his pride? Do you see his pride? Just when you think you've got Jesus figured out and you hit cruise control, Jesus is going to blow your world up. He's going to mess with your categories. Um, this is what he does because he is God. He's Lord, and he will not assume another role in our lives. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we're signing up for him to challenge us in the most deepest parts of our lives, our hearts. Because pride is a heart issue. And when we say off limits to it, that's exactly where Jesus is going to go. We tell Jesus, don't go somewhere, you know where he's going to go next. Socially, in our hearts, areas of our lives, areas of campus, that's exactly where he's going to go when we tell him what he can and can't do. And that's actually good news. Um, Next, Jesus challenges our understanding of love. Understanding of salvation challenges our hearts, challenges our understanding of love. So Jesus... And the lawyer continued to talk about the law. They discussed loving God with everything you have, loving your neighbor. And the religious expert, the lawyer's confidence in his ability ability to keep the law, it's it's spilling over into the conversation, and he's saying, who is my neighbor? One commentator says this. I want you to hear this. The question put to the Christ, who is my neighbor, from the lawyer, is asked in order that he will answer your relative and your friend, that's your neighbor. The lawyer will then answer confidently, I've, lo- I've loved them fully. And then Jesus will praise him and say to him, you have truly fulfilled the law. Well done, good and faithful servant. The lawyer will then depart basking before the people in praise of his good works and enjoying a newly won honor and confidence based on his law keeping. Like Dwight, all the lawyer wants is for someone to say that he's right. 
that he's okay, that he's fulfilled the law, that he's kept the rules, that he's crossed his T's and dotted his I's. That's what he wants so badly. And so Jesus proceeds to fill out this story, and here's what happens. You know the story. A man gets beaten up, left for dead, stripped naked. Three people show up. The first two, it's a priest and a Levite. Priest walks by him. Levite walks by him. Samaritan then shows up. The reason why, we need to slow down and understand the cultural context of this passage. The reason that the priests will not stop to care is because they were so concerned with ritualistic law keeping. And they would, if they would stop and touch a dead body because he would have looked dead, scholars agree with that, He would have been ritually unclean. The priest doesn't want to get dirty, literally, and spiritually. And what we know about Levites is the Levites were actually the assistants of the priest. He's just following the priest's lead here. And he's saying, well, if it's not safe to go help this seemingly dead man, if the priest thinks that, I'm definitely not going to do it. Because then I would be dis- disagreeing with the priest who knows the law inside and out and what's clean and unclean. I'm not going to do it. So that's what's going on here. Then the Samaritan shows up. And Jesus picks the most unlikely hero culturally for this. I don't know if you knew this, but Samaritans were hated in this time. They were hated by Jewish people. There was an intense and really messy rivalry culturally and socially and spiritually and theologically that was decades and decades long. And Jesus picks the Samaritan who they thought would be so dirty, so unclean, and that's who he picks. The hated Samaritan is the hero, one commentator says. So what does he do? What does the Samaritan do? Look at verse 33 again. I I want you to try to hear this in a fresh way. We're going to read this again. But the Samaritan journeyed, came to where he was, saw him, he had compassion, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Next day, gives the money and says, whatever this costs, I'll come back and and repay you when I come back. That's what he does. Y'all, this is above and beyond love. There's nothing halfway about this. This is costly love. It cost something. There was self-sacrifice involved. The Samaritan gives up his time. He stops what he is doing. He goes at a slower pace. He was doing something. like He, he willingly interrupted his schedule to stop for this dude. He spends time healing his wounds. He sacrifices his time in picking the man up and putting him on his horse. He sacrificed his time in staying with the man at the inn. We'll get to that in a second. Samaritan also gives up his resources. Gave up his resources. He used oil and wine to heal the man's sores and wounds, which was actually used in temple worship. He gives up two denarii, which was like, he he actually ends up giving this whole situation two days labor when it's all said and done. He sacrifices his resources. And he comes back and says to to the pub, put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. He gives up his safety. Y'all, inns back then, these places, these overnight places were like halfway houses. You could die in your sleep because someone could come get you. He doesn't leave the man because he knows that it's unsafe. 
I'm not going to leave him. And I'm going to make sure to come back if I do. He's sacrificing his own safety to make sure that this guy is safe. It's self-sacrifice involved when someone is in need. Jesus is challenging the lawyer here, and he's getting up in his face and doing this. Because the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question changes from that. There's a quote on your handout about this. I don't know where it is. Uh, It goes from, who is my neighbor, to, to whom can I neighbor? It's everyone. The answer is everyone in need, even your enemies. That's the conclusion. Everyone in need. Because Jesus is saying in this parable with challenging his his understanding of love, you're the Levite. You're the priest. You think you know about love? You don't know anything about love. You can rattle off the law. You never miss a quiet time. You know nothing about love. That is what he's saying, y'all. We've seen the challenge. We've seen, um, we've seen the ins and outs of it. Let's talk about the fuel. The fuel. Jesus is painting a picture, y'all, that to love our neighbors. This is radical, costly, self-sacrificial love. And I just want to ask, who can do this? Who is up for this? You are not up for this. I'm not up for this. This is, this is crazy talk. Listen to this. I want to walk, I'm going to walk through again. Just to, I want us to soak in this for a second, what this dude does. Listen to this, the commentator. For the Samaritan in the, in, in the story to stop and help this beaten man, it costs time. He stops his journey, slows his pace significant, significantly. Costs him comfort and allowing the man to ride. He's forced to walk and costs him... Uh, money in order to care for this beaten man he he pours oil and wine expensive things on the wounds to treat the man he pays for this man to be cared for at the end he's giving up his security it's risky for him to stop doesn't have all the answers as to why this person was beaten maybe it was a gang fight it was a thief and he was a bad man who knows if he would actually die in his sleep neighbor love is costly neighbor love is costly who can do this I hope you see that this is both compelling and also like this is kind of insane stuff and it should feel insane. It should feel insane and Jesus wants it to feel that way. Who can do this? Guys, the fuel for loving our neighbor this way and emulating the Good Samaritan is in knowing that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus fulfills the role of of Good Samaritan here. The power in this story is looking at the storyteller, Jesus. Jesus embodies the Good Samaritan self-sacrificial love that's so costly. Jesus came to his enemies and he left, who were left for dead, and he gives himself for them to heal our wounds. He gives up his life to revive our life. He gave up his safety and entered personal danger to protect us and actually to defeat death itself. He didn't pass by us when he saw us naked and ashamed and broken. He gave himself to us. Do you see this? Jesus fulfills the role ultimately. Of course you are up for this. Of course I'm not. It's not about getting it perfect. We emulate this self-sacrificial love when we get it in our bones that Jesus has already done it for us. Jesus' love is costly and there's nothing, nothing halfway about it. 
And that's the only fuel. When you get Jesus' costly love for you in your bones, you're compelled to give yourself away. Of course you will. I've noticed in the conversations I've had recently, and really in the past like five, ten years, I had friends in college I remember I would talk to, and the ones who had uh, essentially were going to college with a full ride somehow, either with scholarship or from their parents, from a family member, athletic scholarship, whatever it is, they kind of like did college differently. Um, and I like I did not <laughs> did not have the GPA and the standardized testing score to get any kind of scholarship. Another score, another story for another day. But um, I just noticed like a difference in the way that my friends um, related to the college years who experienced the sacrifices of someone else. Because that's what there was such a gratitude about the way that they would try to navigate college and the way they'd manage their time and the way that they would study and the way they would work hard, the way they would do friendship. There was such a like, and I've ta- I, I feel like this comes up in conversation with y'all. It's like, I want to steward this time well, because like I, someone got me here. Does that, someone got me here. I want to be thoughtful about how I conduct myself, how I spend my time, how I work, how I study, because Self-sacrificial love is powerful, and you have experienced it firsthand, and it's changed your heart, and you want to be a different kind of student here. Because the only fuel to actually change your heart and put wind in your sails to change your actions and your heart is self-sacrificial love. So when you see that Jesus gave up his time for you, only then will you give up time for others. Only when you see Jesus willingly inconvenience himself for you, only then will you willingly inconvenience yourself for others. When you see that Jesus entered into danger to secure your safety, will you actually give up your safety for someone else's in, someone else in need? When you see that Jesus gave up his life, only then will you give yourself away. Are we making sense? Jesus and his costly love as the true good Samaritan is the only fuel for the Christian love, the, the Christian life of loving our, our neighbors, ourselves. There's all kinds of things how we can think about landing the plane with applying this to our lives. I just want to say three things. I want to talk about my friend Chase for two seconds and I'm going to be done. First thing is this. We have to chew on this. We must follow Jesus on his terms. We must follow Jesus on his terms. We must embrace a posture of a learner and a follower rather than an expert and a law keeper. We have to get over ourselves and our preoccupations with our to-do lists and our GPA and our image and our pride and our misunderstandings of the good life and let Jesus have the final word on us. And follow his lead. He's the master. He's the teacher. He's the savior. He's God and we're not. And that's what we have to realize if we're going to follow Jesus. And it will be uncomfortable. I'm telling you all, this life is the only life that will get in your bones, in your soul, in your heart and satisfy you. It's the only life. We must embrace a life following Jesus of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is a lifestyle. Let me ask you this. Who can you be a neighbor to? It's not who, but 
in terms of like who is my neighbor, everyone's your neighbor. You're to love everyone in need. But like who who is like who in your life is like drowning spiritually that needs to hear you speak words of encouragement to them because no one else is rather than assuming that someone actually is being kind using your words who needs you to sacrifice your time and to stay up one more night really really late and you like love your sleep and you're going to be a slow faithful listening presence and they're going to unpack their childhood again or relationship problem you're the only one that will listen. Who needs to do this? Or who, who, needs, who, who needs you to listen to them in your life? What would it look like to give up your finances? What would it look like to give up your time and your energy and your resources? What would it look like to give up your comfort so someone else can experience comfort? What would this look like? I'm going to get very practical. Like, I've, I've talked to a few guys about this. Like, Fall conference folks who are driving, and if you're driving this weekend, uh, resist the urge to ride with people who look like you, talk like you, dress like you, and let the comfort die and ride with someone you know who's on the fringes and maybe you personally struggle with. This is, this is costly love. That's what we're called to. Very practical example there. Last thing is this. We must trust in, in Christ's radical love as fuel, the only fuel. I'm going to close with this. So Chase is my college roommate. Um, I was the best man in his wedding. He was the best man in my wedding. Um, and he's the RUF campus minister at the University of California in Berkeley now. And great guy. Many of you guys know that when uh, my older brother died of this long kind of journey with stage four colon cancer this past January. I want to tell you what Chase did. Chase was the first person that I told. My brother died on a Sunday. I text Chase and told him the news on a Sunday. Chase got the first, got on the first plane from Oakland to Nashville, Tennessee, immediately after he heard the news, was there on Monday. He came and stayed with me for nearly two weeks. He listened to me. He cried with me. He sat with me. He brought me food. He helped me prepare my brother's eulogy at his service. He was so faithful, so kind. He never left. He has two little boys and a wife in California, and he left. No questions asked, and I did not even ask him to come. I assumed he would come, but later in the week, he was there the next day. He was there the next day. He never left my side until the funeral was over. He sacrificed. I want to, this is what I want to emphasize. He sacrificed, and I knew this was so profound about this. He sacrificed his time. He gave up his money, spent a lot of money to do this, his energy and his comfort because I was in need. And this is, this is kind of a, fun, a funny bit about this. Um, Chase hates flying more than anyone that I know. Like literally like anxiety attacks the entire time on the flight. <laughs> like he is like a hot mess when he flies. And it was like, I can just see him in a plane being like, I hate being a good friend right now, but I'm going. Um, we joke about this. Y'all, he was there. I want to ask, ask this question. This way I'm going to close. What kind of friend do you think that makes me want to be? Do you think that makes me want to be a, 
worse friend or a better friend. That experience changed me. His costly love changed me. And getting that in my bones and experiencing that makes me want to give myself away. Guys, it's the only fuel. Christ's sacrifice and him giving up himself for you is the only fuel for this. It's too big. It's too costly. It's not meant to be done perfectly. And the only fuel for the long haul is Christ's costly love for you. But it's fuel that will last, and it's sufficient, and that's good news. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word and...